0: Many of our greatest fears in this life don't come from what we can see. Often our greatest fears come from the things that we can't. An entire future of potential threats as we look at our path ahead. Danger that may or may not come to pass. But as we sit and think about it, Satan fans the flame of the unknown to enlarge our fear of the future and minimize our God of the future. My friends, as you look at the path before you, maybe you begin to fear as you consider potential threats that lay ahead of you. You look at the next month, you look at the next year, look at the next five or ten, and maybe as you begin to walk that path in your mind, you begin to feel fear rise of those threats that may come, either real or perceived, and you may wonder if you will make it through. Friends, that fear is a common experience of being a human being. It's part of the human experience, and it was no different for the ancient Israelites. They had a very similar experience. See, there were particular moments every year for the Israelites in the Old Testament where they would make a pilgrimage, a journey back to Jerusalem, three times a year, actually, during one of their three great feasts as God had commanded them in the book of Exodus, that they would come back to Jerusalem, the holy city, for these feasts. No matter where they were in Israel, they would make this pilgrimage back to the holy city. And this road that would take them through Jerusalem, Jerusalem's a mountainous area, particularly around, uh, Israel's a mountainous area, particularly around Jerusalem. And this road that would lead to Jerusalem would make them go through the mountains. And these Israelite mountains were dangerous and uncertain. Robbers, Thieves were in the mountains, and they knew exactly when these people would be coming. They knew the calendar as well as they did. They knew when they'd be walking the road and wait for just the right time to be able to attack. Perhaps unsuspecting families, older couples, people that couldn't defend themselves. There were dangers in the mountains, in Israel. And on this journey through the mountains, not only were there dangers in the from robbers and thieves, but also dangers just from nature. If you're walking through this mountain, and a storm hits, rain begins to fall, path becomes slippery. You have I I don't know if any of you have toddlers, but it's hard for me to keep them from falling on a regular ground, much less mountainous, wet ground. It's dangerous. The sun gets hot. Terror in the night. All these threatening God's people as they embarked on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You know the story in the New Testament of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. That was what happened to him. He was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho through one of these paths and a robber struck him. Took everything he had, left him for dead. A Levite and a priest passed by him, but a Samaritan stops to help him back to health. That's the journey in the road that lay before every Israelite before they went back on this journey. And listen, this was before there was Google Maps. This was before there was air conditioning. This was before there was DVD players in the vans. All right, there's no YouTube to help your toddler. All right, Miss Rachel on YouTube for all the toddler parents out there. She was of no help to the Israelites here in the ancient times. They had to get on a donkey and walk for days. It was a dangerous road. So on those days as the families would pack up and get ready for this pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, you can imagine then as they would make sure the infants were strapped in, food was prepared, the parents would then turn and they would look at the mountains. They'd look at the hills in front of them. And you can imagine the fear that would begin to rise as they felt fragile, they felt vulnerable, And would feel unsafe. And one question seemed to rise to the front of their mind. Are we going to make it? Who's going to help us? How are we going to get to this holy city in Jerusalem? Well friends, to help his people in that specific moment. God wrote his people a song. And it's the psalm we'll be looking at this morning in Psalm 121. We read some of it earlier. The Psalm 121, if you notice in, this, um, in the uh, description underneath it, this is known as a song of ascents. This is right in the middle of the fifth book of the Psalms where there's a grouping of these Psalms, these songs of ascent, In Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, these Psalms in particular were written for God's people as they pilgrimed and journeyed to Jerusalem for them to sing as they made this pilgrimage. And this psalm in particular was given as that fear rises here at the very beginning or uh, at the end as they're going back to their home and they look at the hills and they see the threats in front of them, the potential danger. This is the song God gave them here in Psalm 121. Let's read this together. I'll read it and then we will jump in. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 8, a song of ascents. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going, both now and forever. Friends, we look at the Psalm, there's three things that we see the nature of this protection. God's people looked at the path ahead of them, they felt the fear. God wanted them to know that He would be beside them and He would protect His people. And what does that protection look like? That's what we see in Psalm 121 three different things. First, we see a needed protection. A needed protection in verses 1 and 2. Second, we'll see an attentive protection, an attentive protection in verses 3 through 6. And finally, we'll see a comprehensive protection, a comprehensive protection in verses 7 through 8. First, it needed protection. Again, as we've already mentioned, the nature of what would be happening here for the family as they looked at the hills, they looked at the mountains. That fear begins to rise within them of the danger and the threats that are ahead of them. They needed protection, and they were aware of it. As fear began to rise, you can hear it right there in verse 1. I lift my eyes towards the mountains. Where will my help come from? You can hear the sense of desperation in their voice. Who is going to help me? I can't withstand all the problems that are going to come my way. Who's going to help? And this fear begins to rise. And again, we are not taking a triannual trip to Jerusalem on foot and needing this psalm. Oh, but friends, we do, faith a path. We do face a path ahead of us with all sorts of danger and threats. It may not be the hills that make you afraid. But there is something ahead of us. There's something ahead of you. That when you stop and let yourself think for too long, all of a sudden you begin to feel this fear rise. And you can resonate with that question. Oh, who's going to help? Where will my help come from? With this diagnosis, with this broken relationship, With dreams that have been unmet, with a relationship that has been fractured. Finances that seem to have disappeared through a stock market or through something else. Maybe you've lost your job. Whatever it is, you look forward and you begin to worry about the things that may happen in the future. And you feel that fear rise. Where will my help come from? Friends, sometimes I think that fear gets a bad rap in the church. I don't think that fear is a sin. That's a whole other conversation, which again, if you want to talk about, you can email me. I would love to talk about it, but that's not the point of the sermon. So I'm not going to dive into it. I don't think that fear is a sin, but I think that fear can often lead to sin if we don't handle it properly. Fear is a part of the natural human life, being being a human being. As we walk through a Genesis 3 and broken world, as you walk into a doctor's office, awaiting to hear the results of a scan that didn't look good, Oh, friends, we're going to be afraid in that moment. And so we do not need to heap guilt on ourselves whenever that rises. The question is, what do we do with that fear? There are unhealthy and sinful ways to respond to that fear. A couple of the most prominent ways is either through escapism or control. When we begin to feel pressure in life and we begin to feel fear rise, we may just try to escape, just try to numb whatever it is we're going through. There's a million different things we escape to. Whether it's something on the computer or something at the end of a bottle. We'll run to something to just escape the pressure of this world and what we're facing. Oh, friends, it's a sinful response to that fear. Or maybe the response is to control. I'm worried about what's coming. I can see the pieces. I, I feel this fear rising. I need to get my hands on it and try to control it. Let me get a grip on it. And that's going to lead to either anxiety or anger as it begins to unravel. As we go, okay, let me get a fix on this. I and we we unseat God from the throne. We place ourselves there and we go, let me get a hold of my life. Oh, friends, those are unhelpful ways to respond and sinful ways to respond then to this fear. So how should we respond to fear? Oh, friends, I think fear extends a unique opportunity for God to grow our trust in him. Rather than feeling guilty and trying to push fear away, listen to it and ask the question, what is this saying about my relationship to God? What is producing this fear? Stop and ask questions about it. Be curious about it. Don't either push it away or try to control it away. Ask the question, what does this emotion say about God? And it's giving us an opportunity to grow our trust in Him. Why do I say that? I say that because I thought back this week of the moments whenever I would tell my kids and I would lean up into them and I I would tell them, trust me. Whenever I would lean forward and I'd tell my kids that and I thought back in those moments in life, every single time I thought about that situation, you know what the situation was? It was either a moment where where my child was scared or in pain. And in those moments as a father, I would lean in and I'd go, hey, trust me. You're going to make it through. I'm right here. I've seen what happens. I know what's going to... You're, you're going to be okay. I know that you're afraid. Trust me. I'm telling you it's going to be fine. I'm right here. I've got you. That it happened just yesterday. We were at a water park and we were going through the Lazy River. You're like, what can be terrifying on the Lazy, lazy River? Apparently lots of things to a two-year-old. As we're going through, there's this one part in Lazy River where there's this waterfall that comes down. And as we turn the corner, you begin to hear it. It's pretty loud. And especially in one space where this water's falling fairly hard, my two-year-old hears it and begins to freak out, climbing out of the inner tube. And so what do I do as a father in that moment? You, you think you're just going to climb out on your own? Go ahead. You swim. Go ahead. You try to get away on this on your own. You've got it. Go ahead. You've got it, Brooks. You think you've got this? Go ahead. That's not what I did. But as a father, what I did in that moment is he began to crawl out. I went, I picked him up, I brought him close, and I said, hey, I've got you. It's okay. This waterfall is not that bad. I know it sounds bad, but it's okay. I got an inner tube that had a little covering in the middle of it. I held it over us. I found a spot in the waterfall. It wasn't going, coming down as hard. We walked through it. Not even a drop got on him. I nailed going through that waterfall as a father. <laughs> But in that moment, as I began to see fear arise in him, what I did as a father was to bend down to where he was, grab him tightly and say, hey, I've got you. It's okay. You're going to make it through to the other side. Friends, I think that God is a far better father than any of us. Responds similarly to his children when they cry out in fear and in pain. Where will my help come from? As I turn the corner in life and I see this thing ahead of me that I don't know how I'm going to make through, I think that God's instinct is the same. You see this in Psalm 1, which Psalm is it, 139? I think it's Psalm 139. If it's not, then you can look it up afterwards. But the compassion that God has for His children, the love that He has, as high as the sky is, heavens are from the earth, as high as the mountains are from the earth, as wide as the east is from the west, So God's great love is for His children. He has compassion for His children. Why? As a father has compassion on his child. Because He knows what we're made of. He knows that we're made of dirt, of dust. He knows that you're a human being he knows that you live in a broken world and in that moment when you walk through pain and fear and you look out and you wonder where's my help going to come from the compassion of God kicks in and he comes down and says hey I've got you I'm right here you're going to make it to the other side Friends, I think it's an opportunity for our trust to grow As we ask questions about that fear, it allows us to lean into the Father, into His promises, to see who He is and what He's promised to us, and then to ask ourselves the question do I really believe that? Do I really believe Him? Am I confident? Is my my trust? I think that's a good word for faith. Trust, faith, belief. I think think trust is a good word there because it gets at not just an intellectual knowledge or agreement of truth, but this kind of emotional trust where we let our weight go into him. We lean into him. We trust him. Do we not just know what he's promised, but do we trust it? Do we lean into that promise? A fear extends an opportunity for that trust to be able to grow. You think of the moments in the New Testament, particularly the one in the boat when his disciples were with Jesus, and the storm happens in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. What do the disciples do? They begin to be worried because they think they're about to die. So they run down to Jesus, who is sleeping, by the way. Just a wonderful, wonderful picture of Jesus' control of the situation. The boat is, uh, is tossing back and forth, thinking, I don't know if you've ever been in a boat in the middle of a storm. But especially a boat that was made out of wood in the first century. I could understand why the disciples were concerned that they weren't going to make it. But Jesus is asleep at the bottom. And the disciples run down and what do they do? They wake him up like, Jesus, we've got to do something. We're about to die. Can you make, listen, do one of the things you do. Do one of the miracles. What's one of the things you do? Can you help us? And what's Jesus say to them? He comes up, he says, peace to the storm and those waves obey him. That wind obeys him, and he calms the storm. And then once he tells his disciples, you have little faith. See, Jesus points, he he takes the, um, the diagnosis, and he points it at their faith, at their trust. You have little faith. He didn't say you have no faith. And friends, we need to make sure we understand this correctly. Jesus is not scolding or reprimanding them going, oh, come on, guys, rolling his eyes. Remember how much a little faith can do in the New Testament. It can move mountains. Remember God's impulse to those whose faith is barely hanging on, who may be bruised like a reed or or flickering and smoldering, smoldering like a wick. The fire's gone out, but the little red ember and smoke is still going. How does God respond? In Isaiah it said that he won't break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. No, God moves in compassion to those with little faith. But he does hope that that faith grows in strength. And that strength can grow, especially in these moments where we feel that fear rising. And we turn to him. Rather than escaping or trying to control, instead trusting in God when that fear rises. That's what we see in the rest of the psalm. This needed protection. Where will my help come from? The psalmist answers himself. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now he will not allow my foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. He says, my help comes from him, this great maker of heaven and earth. And notice the way he describes the Lord, the help that he will receive. This Lord isn't just this covenant God with him in a relationship, but this God is the God who has made everything, the maker of heaven and earth. It is as though he's reminding himself, why should I be afraid of the hills whenever the maker of the hills is by my side? There is nothing... That stands above him. There's nothing that stands beside him. All things stand below him. Because he is the maker of heaven and earth. And that reality. The strength of God. And the help of God. Bring the peace of God to the children of God. He reminds himself that God is the creator. He is the maker. He he has power without end. If you were in our Acts Bible study in the spring, we went through Acts chapter 4. And that scene where the church was beginning to be persecuted. Peter and John were taken. They were beaten. They were threatened that they would be killed. They continued to preach and then released. And they went back and told the disciples gathered in a room, hey, listen, the, the, the greatest authorities, the men with, with the most power in our city are telling us, if we keep on witnessing, if we keep on saying what it is we've seen, proclaiming the risen Christ and his gospel, they said they're going to kill us. And do you know what the disciples did in Acts chapter 4? They did the most powerful thing they could do. They got together and they prayed. It was their first response, not a last resort. And this was their prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 and 24. After Peter and John were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and they said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. And they continued on in their petition. Notice the starting point of their prayer as they face real danger in front of them. Uh, How can we make it through this threat? Oh, God, you are the the maker, the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. These chief priests and elders, they have power here. They don't have authority over you. And their prayer was not even for their comfort or even for their life. Their prayer, if you keep going down, was for boldness to continue to speak. Something so instructive for us there. My friends, this help comes from the great and powerful maker of heaven and earth. That's where our help comes from. That fear as it rises should lead us then to him to teach us that we can in fact trust him. Our help comes from him, the maker of heaven and earth. The last thing before moving on is we need to note that his help often comes in surprising ways. His help is often not the way that we would write it up. God, would you help me? I've got a very particular way you can help me. Can you do this thing? That's often in ways that we would probably even overlook. You look through the Bible and you see the way that God has helped his people. His help may come from a stick that parts the Red Sea, a rock and a sling from a young shepherd boy, trumpets marching around a Jericho wall, or even the birth of babies, one baby in particular. Friends, God's help may come in a surprising way, in a way that you did not expect. But make no mistake, His help will come. He will help those who trust in Him. My help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. What does this help look like? This protection look like? Well, that's what we get here in verses 3 through 6. We see that this is not just a needed protection, but it is an attentive protection verses three through six, describing this. he says, he, The psalmist says, He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep, but the Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. He says at the beginning, as you walk through these paths, through the mountains on the way to Jerusalem, the storms may come, the path may get slippery, but the Lord will not allow your foot to slip. He's right there. He's not going to allow your foot to slip. Your protector, I love that phrase, your protector, that name of God, your protector will not slumber. God does not sleep. There is never a moment that he is not conscious of the needs of his children. That's so unlike us. I love to nap. It is one of my favorite hobbies. Again, I know that um, our elementary kids are here. They typically aren't. And this is just one of the things as an adult, I don't understand. I, I don't know what happens in life where as a child, you don't want to take a nap. And at some point, it switches and it becomes the most cherished activity in your schedule <laughs> as an adult. It's happened somewhere. And just listen from, from, an old, from an old man. Hear this. Cherish the nap times that you have today. And all the parents said, Amen. I get very tired. And I, again, I love to sleep. I love to take a nap. Again, maybe, maybe you're here and you're a kid and there's a moment you can remember where you were in the house, you needed something, you were calling your mom or your dad and you heard nothing. You walk in the living room and you see them passed out on the couch snoring like crazy. You, the TV's on, but all you can hear is snoring. And you're like, well, that's why they didn't answer. They're, they're asleep, they're fast asleep. Oh, friends, this is an incredible truth from God that He never sleeps. He never slumbers. That even in moments where you have to, at the end of the day, turn your conscience off. Your conscience is gone. You are unaware. Like for a third of your life, you're just like not even in existence mentally. In those moments, God continues to keep you. He continues to protect you. He continues to watch over you. He is never unattentive. He is never not alert. He is never not right beside you, aware of what's going on. He is never distracted. He is never too busy doing something else. He is never on his phone texting or scrolling through social media. He is always there, always watching, always present, and always ready to help his children as they cry out to him. There's no one like him. There's this word that shows up over and over here, Uh, again, in the rest of this psalm. Some of your translations may say, keep. The CSB, the one that I'm reading from, says protect. It's the same idea here. That, That the psalmist is driving down this truth. God will keep you. God will protect you. As you look at the uncertainty in your life, the assurance that you have isn't from your strength. It's in His. He's the maker of heaven and earth. His strength is unparalleled, and He has a hold on you, and He will keep you. He will protect you. never sleeps. He never slumbers. It's the Lord who protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. He's right there next to you. This phrase is a phrase that was used uh, as, um, as a butler or someone who would be there to tend to the needs of their people, be able to bring whatever it is that was needed. God is saying, I am there. I am a shade. I am a shelter right by your side. In the moment of your need, I am there. Always. There's nothing that separates me from you. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. It doesn't matter. You don't need SPF. You don't need sunscreen. The Lord will protect you. Okay, that's a metaphor. It's poetic. Wear sunscreen. I'm not saying don't wear sunscreen. What I'm saying is that all the danger from the sun, the psalmist is saying, no, the Lord will protect you. There's nothing in the sun that will, that will kill you, that will harm you, and there's nothing by night that will, that will harm you. So whether you're sunstruck or moonstruck, right, you think about the word, even the word itself, lunatic. The root word there comes from the same root word as lunar. But there was this kind of moonstruck kind of craziness that would strike those in the middle of the night, and they would think that it was the different uh, phases of the moon that would make people go crazy, The psalmist here is saying, there is not a moment at night, there is not a moment in the day and everything in between where the Lord does not keep his people, where the Lord does not protect him, or the sun will not strike you, and the moon will not harm you, because the Lord never sleeps, and the Lord never slumbers. I think this has to be a reference back to an earlier story in the Old Testament from 1 Kings. Chapter 18, one of God's prophets was this man named Elijah. God told Elijah to go and confront the, the king Ahab, uh, who had a number of prophets, over 400 prophets that were uh, worshiping Baal, the false god there in Israel. God told Elijah to go and confront the king to bring all the prophets out, and they're going to have a little God contest. So Elijah went and confronted Ahab and said, hey, bring all the prophets you've got. Let's have Let's have a competition. 1 Kings chapter 18, it's a wonderful scene. There's a a book that we have in our library. I think it's in our library. I went and looked. It's not there right now. Maybe it's checked out, um, but it's called The God Contest. It's a great kid's book. Uh, And again, you can check it out from our library or just buy it. It's a wonderful resource. They're uh, recounting this story in 1 Kings 18. Verse 22, Elijah goes and he calls for the 450 prophets to come and have a competition. He says, let two bulls be given to us, one for you guys, one for me. There to choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, place it on an w- altar of wood, but don't light it on fire. I'll prepare the other bull, place it on the wood, but not light it on fire. And then you call in the name of your god. I'll call in the name of the Lord. And the god who answers it with fire, he's God. So the the this was the competition here in First Kings 18. And so all the prophets respond. They go, that's a great idea. There's 450 of us. One of you. There's gonna be no problem. Thus the competition ensues verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets, Oh, since you're so numerous, we'll choose for yourself one bull. Prepare it first. And you guys go first. You guys have the advantage. Go ahead. So they took the bull that he gave them, prepared it, called the name of the Baal. uh, Baal from morning until noon saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no sound. No one answered. So then they danced around the altar that they had made. Here's where where it's good. I I can't wait to meet Elijah for, for reasons like this. At noon then, after a few hours of this, Elijah mocked them and he said, Hey, shout loudly for he's a God, but maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and he'll wake up. So they shouted loudly, cut themselves with knives and speared according to their custom until blood gushed all over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah steps forward. Not only does he have the altar, but he douses it with water. There's this big trench that was built. The, the trench fills up with water. So th- it seems like there's no way this thing's going to catch on fire. It's now soaking wet. Huge trench of water. And Elijah says, God, it's time to show who you are. And fire falls from heaven, ex- burns up the sacrifice, and licks up every drop of water. And the prophets were like, okay, you win. <laughs> Ali and I went to Israel a few years ago and got to go to Mount Carmel and see the place they believe this scene to have happened. Again, whether or not it did, who knows. But they're trying to sell us a keychain with all of this. That's (laughs) what they do over there. But to be there and think about this scene. For all that we call on for help, apart from God, we hear silence in return. Elijah says, well, maybe they're sleeping. Friends, they're not sleeping. They can't help. It may not be Baal, but there are other things that we turn to for help. Again, whether it be things we escape to, whether it be good things that God's given us, things that we create as idols in our heart to try to bring us peace, satisfaction, joy in our life, we turn to them going, will you help me? Maybe this new job will help. Maybe more money will help. Maybe a family will help. Maybe a relationship will help. Maybe a a settled retirement will help. Maybe health will help. Those are all good things, but friends, ultimately, they cannot help us make it through God alone can. And here's the encouragement and hope from Psalm 121 Our God never sleeps, He never slumbers. There is never an unanswered uh, person on the other line. He is always attentive, always there. And you may go, Well, I pray, and sometimes I feel like God doesn't answer me. Oh, friends, it's not because He doesn't care. It's not because He is not there. It's not because He is distracted. Is because, again, these are the moments where we hang on to Psalm 121. Do I trust Him or not? Is He there? Are these promises true? And you notice here in this section, in these four verses, the focus of the psalmist is not on the problem. The focus is on the protector. Focusing on who is the one protecting you. And you may say, well, what if my help doesn't come? What if the divorce happens? What if cancer wins? What if I lose my job? How is this then true? Or maybe to ask it more pointedly, we may say, you know, the story of Joseph who was sold by his brothers into slavery, was in prison, again, seemed to get out and then had another incident, went back to prison. Seemed like his life was over. How How could Joseph sing this song? Think of the Apostle Paul, all that he went through, persecution, the pain, stoned what they believed to be to death. I don't know. I've gone through pain. I've never gone through enough pain in which someone, a group of people were convinced I was actually dead. That's what Paul went through. They drag, drag him outside the city, leave him for dead. Paul comes back to, and he's like, all right, got to go back and keep preaching the word. Walks back into the city. Same message. People trust in Jesus. But surely it got better for Paul, right? How does Paul's life end? He's executed by Rome. How can Paul sing this song? And for us, as we walk through difficulties in this life, we go, well, the help's not coming. Well, oh, friends, I think it's important to see what God's promising and what He's not. If we read this psalm and believe that his help is making our life as comfortable and easy as possible, an alleviation of pain today, we will have misunderstood how God helps us. And we misunderstand the great good in our life. God does alleviate pain. Friends, read the entire Bible. We see that happens when Jesus returns. It's happening, but it happens then. On this road in a Genesis 3 world, we will experience pain. We'll experience suffering. We'll experience difficulty and tears. And we are sorrowful, but as Paul says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How? Because Psalm 121 continues to be true in those moments. It's in those moments that we say, Lord, it feels like my life is falling apart, but I know that no matter what is around me, nothing can separate the one beside me. You are here, and you are my greatest good. You have given me yourself... And I can find happiness, I can find joy, I can find peace in you. And you are the one holding me. And you will keep me to the end. And there is a day when you wipe away every tear. And in all of eternity, this life will feel light and momentary. The, the eternal life of Christians is a true reality friends, I was talking to a friend of mine who's walking through a cancer diagnosis right now in treatment. I was just talking to him about the reality of facing cancer and whether or not heaven makes any impact in his life. As we were in the car driving on the way to his treatment, he looked at me and he said, my real future is of great comfort to me. And it struck me in such a profound way that that's, yes, that's the way we are to think. It is our real future And that reality should inform us as we walk through, as we see God has told us, I will keep you until you go to experience the inheritance that I've kept for you. He will protect us. I heard a story, another story of an older married couple, Bill Hogan and his wife. They've been married for over 60 years. He was a retired pastor. And he told the story of him and his wife. He would would always, they had a ritual. Uh, And he said he believed in the value of rituals, him and his wife did. They had one in particular that he was he said was especially precious to him. He said every time he left the house, his wife Jane would meet him at the door, tell him goodbye, and ask him some questions. She would look at him and say, Who goes before you? And he would respond, The King of Glory. Who rides beside you? The King of Glory. Who follows behind you, the King of Glory? Who watches down from heaven at you, the King of Glory? Who hovers all around you, the angelic host? And then she would look at him and she would say, well, You can't be any safer than that, can you? And he'd go on his trip. Our oh, friends, today, at 90 years old, Bill is medically incapacitated, but his wife every day tells him those same words. You can't be any safer than you are right now. The King of glory is here. And He has you. Friends, our great hope, our great comfort is not alleviation of temporary pain in this life. But that we will gain an unending life in the next. And that we will make it there. Not because of our strength. Not because of your effort. Not because you'll get to the end and bring a record of of good that you've done. And say, God, was I good enough to get in? The basis of our assurance is in Psalm 121 that God has looked at us and He said, I will protect you. I will keep you. He's the shelter by our side. He never sleeps. He is never not keeping you. He is never not watching you. He is never not protecting you, making sure you make it to the end. And not the sun or the moon or anything in between will be able to take you away from Him. That's the promise we stand on. It's how Jesus looked at his disciples the night before he was killed in John 16, And he says, I have told you these things that you may have peace because you will have suffering in this world. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. We will walk through suffering. We'll walk through pain. But Christ has overcome it And there is peace we can have through it because He is walking right next to us. And friends, it ends with this blessing, this sort of a blessing in verses 7 and 8. As we see this, this protection is not only attentive, but again, as we've already seen, it is comprehensive. And the psalmist drives it home just so that we understand it. In verse 7 and 8, we see the Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life or your soul, depending on your translation. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. I want you to see the way that the psalmist is describing this protection. Right there in the second part of verse 7, it says, He will protect your life, that, that word, that Hebrew word, there, your life, is a sense of being holistic, your entire person. That's why some translations translate that as your soul. It's who you are, the essence of who you are. Not just your physical life. It's saying God will protect you. He will preserve you. And then there, in the very beginning, we see that He will protect you, all of you. He'll protect you from all harm. There is no harm that will be able to separate you from His protection. He's the one watching over you. He will protect your coming and your going. Again, for the pilgrim here in ancient Israel, both to Jerusalem and back. Oh, friends, for us in our life, it means every single moment, every millisecond, God is there beside us watching over us, both now now, and forevermore. So what does his protection look like? Friends, it is comprehensive. He protects all of you from every threat in every moment at all times. That's the protection of your God. There's never a moment where he is not not keeping you. In this image of a pilgrim, my friends, that's the image of what it means to be a Christian. Again, we're not making our way to Jerusalem. On foot. But if you read Revelation, do you know how this eternal dwelling with God, this new heavens and new earth, do you know what else it's described as? It's given another name. It's given the name of a new Jerusalem. This holier city where God will dwell with his people forever and everything sad will be undone. Every, every tear will be wiped away. Death will be dead as we live with him forever. And so in a very real way, friends, Like the pilgrims in Psalm 121, we set our eyes on our heavenly city. And we are making our march through the wilderness and through the mountains in this life. And along the way, there's all sorts of danger and threats that we will encounter. And as you look at the path between here and there, and you begin to feel that question rise where will my help come from? How can I make it to the end? How can I be there in the presence of God in this new Jerusalem? Friends, I hope you remember Psalm 121. It's a psalm for every pilgrim Christian. Because God's people have always been a pilgrim people. This place is not our home. We're headed home. And I know you're afraid of the hills. But God wants you to remember that he's the one who made the hills. Hear God through Psalm 121 telling us, I I raised them to the exact height that I desired. I placed every stone in its place. I painted every uh, brush and drew every blade of grass. There's nothing in those hills that falls outside of my sovereign control because I am the maker, sustainer, and ruler of every square inch that you will travel. No hill is too high. No storm is too strong. No night is too dark. He is our help. He is our comfort. And the great promise at the very end of the book of Jude in verses 24 and 25 is the promise that we stand on as we get to the end of Psalm 121. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of His glory. Without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Be glory and majesty, power and authority. Before all time, now and forever. Amen. Amen. That our hope and our assurance... Is in the fact that He is able to protect us, He is able to keep us, and He will bring us to the end where we will stand before Him forever. Friends, that is our comfort. It's the confession we read earlier, and I want to close reading that again, perhaps with new eyes. What is your only comfort in life and death, through every hill and every mountain and every valley? What comfort do we have? Here is our comfort that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. And He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair on my head can fall. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him our hope and life and death, it's that we belong to Him. That He keeps us. That He protects us. And that He will protect you from all harm. He will protect your entire life. He will protect your coming and going, both now and forever. Let's pray.